0: Good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. This is BRN AM for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. And our top story today, reactions to the new DOL fiduciary rule. We have them. Joining me now to discuss this and a lot more, Tim Rouse is the executive director of the Spark Institute. And Adam McMahon is with the law firm Davis & Harmon. Adam, great to meet you. Tim, great to see you again. Thanks so much to both of you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and I I just found out that Adam's a Pittsburgh fan, but I like him anyway. Um, I'm just kidding, Adam. Uh, Let's talk about this new fiduciary role background, Tim. And and I want to start, we've heard a lot about it. We've read a lot about it. And I want to ask you, um, why is the DOL doing this and doing it now?
1: Well, the DOL wants to address conflicts of interest uh, that are associated with advice that's given in the context of an employee benefit retirement plans and IRAs. Um that's a worthy and noble goal, uh notwithstanding the way they're uh trying to achieve that goal. Uh, the DOL tried to put uh in place a very similar rule during the Obama administration, uh but that rule uh was ultimately struck down by the courts. Uh following that surprise ruling the DOL um took incremental steps to to tighten its investment advice rules uh, without actually amending its regulations. Though uh, those changes, although significant, did not uh, revive the the 2016 rule. Uh, It is clear now, uh, based on the current proposal, the DOL thought much more should be done to resurrect the key components of the 2016 rule. What is interesting is that the DOL is currently taking this approach, even though the SEC and state uh, insurance regulators have established a best interest standard of care for many uh, interactions involving retirement accounts. Um, Through its proposal, uh, the DOL is making it clear that it wants all retirement advice controlled by a single standard of care, um, its, its fiduciary rule
0: uh and adam I want to come to you and i know um i hate to put you in this spot and and by the way i, I love the people of pittsburgh I, as we were talking offline you can be fans of your own team but still like the other person's uh, other team's city so i certainly do but i want to put this ask you can you summarize what the new rule does because i think tim laid out the why but i think we need to get in the brass tacks like what does it do and how is it a little bit different
2: yeah, and I think that's, you know, any regulatory proposal, there's there's all of the the impact, the implications, but the, the devil can often be in the details, so I'd be glad to share something on that. And I think probably the best way to do this is probably do a little bit of ERISA 101, so I don't want to take everybody back to school too much, but obviously uh, many folks watching this are going to going to know that ERISA is the federal law that controls uh, retirement savings. And under ERISA, certain individuals who have special relationships uh, um, of trust and confidence, those who exercise uh, discretion over a plan, they're treated as fiduciaries and they're subject to specific duties, subject to the duty of prudence, duty of loyalty, but they're also subject to ERISA's prohibited transaction rules, which control how service providers and fiduciaries can get paid. And since 1975, the Department of Labor has had a longstanding regulation controlling when individuals who provide investment advice will be treated as fiduciaries. And under that regulatory definition, there's some clear fiduciary, there's some clear markers that define fiduciary conduct from non-fiduciary conduct. Um, DOL in its current proposal would be eliminating that rule and they would be creating a, a, a new rule. It has some similarities to the, the previous rule, but it is, it is really a, a an elimination of the, the previous rule and the introduction of a new rule that will significantly expand the types of activities that are treated as fiduciary investment advice, largely by eliminating those clear fiduciary markers that I talked about, um, things that, for example, would have required advice to be provided on an uh, an ongoing regular basis, um, or advice in in a relationship where there's a mutual understanding that 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 advice can be relied upon as a basis for the investor's decision. And what they've done is they've introduced this new kind of facts and circumstances test, which covers many more interactions. And at the same time they're doing that, they're also making changes to what are called the prohibited transaction exemption rules, right? So if you're a fiduciary and you make an investment recommendation that affects your compensation, under ERISA that is by default prohibited. But you, if you have an exemption, it can be allowed. And what they've done is they've they've gone back and they, they've taken a look at their existing exemption for folks who provide investment advice, and they're making those rules much more difficult to comply with. And they've also gone back and looked at some other exemptions, uh, for example, exemptions that can be used for certain types of products, like insurance. And they've said, all investment advice, we want it to come under our, our newly revised exemption, which has those, those more stringent conditions. And we're going to essentially take away those other exemptions that have previously existed. And they're trying to bring it all under one umbrella. Um, that exemption, you'll, you will might hear me say, is called, generally called PTE 2020 uh,
0: uh, thanks for that, Adam. And, and Tim, I want to come, come back to you because many of your members are record keepers, uh, service providers, people in and around the retirement community, and they do provide some level of advice or guidance along the way. Can you give us an example of an advice of advice that's impacted by the rule that Adam was so eloquently talking about?
1: Sure. And, uh, for, um, first of all, the, the advice that's being, um, the advice that's being impacted here uh, is both advice given to the participant and advice that could be given to the plan sponsor. Um, I'll give just one example of advice that could be given to a participant, and that is advice, uh, for instance, if a plan sponsor often hires record keepers to to monitor their plan and look for overweightings, right? Uh, and you know this, Jeff, from your past experience and your history, if they, for instance, see a participant that's overweighted in company stock, well, the 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 uh, advice to um, divest or or uh, to spread around that risk outside of company stock uh, would fall into this category and uh, would be would would put the uh, record keeper in a position of being a fiduciary. I'll let Adam. You know, I know Adam's got a couple other examples too.
0: Well, Tim, thanks for that. I think great example. Adam, I want to come to you and get get some additional examples I think you have related to the type of advice that could be impacted
2: by this new rule. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the examples that Tim just gave is a great example of some of the concerns that Spark has had with this rule about the different tools and, and services and products that we offer that have traditionally not been treated as fiduciary advice under the, the longstanding 1975 part test. It would be drawn into that definition under the current proposal. Um, I think you know one of the things we often hear about, and something I think Dol has has uh, you know pitched this rule as being something specifically addressing uh, rollover recommendations, which is something that was covered by their 2016 rule. They've taken some steps over the years to, to tighten the rules regarding when a rollover recommendation is fiduciary advice. Um, these proposed regulations would clearly treat those as fiduciary advice. But I think one of the important takeaways is this is not just a rule about rollovers. This pick this rule would impact not only um, individuals saving their workplace retirement plans, individuals saving their IRAs, it also impacts the advice provided to employer plan sponsors. There's just one test for all the different types of advice that go out there, regardless of product or or, or however it works, Uh, this would cover all of that. I think in addition to that kind of diversification um, tool, diversification encouragement, um, a few other things we've heard about is concerns about plan sales, right? Plans are often sold, oftentimes to small employers, with a default platform of investments, um, under the current proposal, those types of, of one-time sales or, or sales conversations would newly be transformed into fiduciary advice. I think at the participant level, the other thing that, that we were concerned about you know, from a record keeping perspective is a lot of time uh, record keepers also make available uh, other types of, of tools that they wanna make available to participants and, and oftentimes encourage them to stay in the plan keep their money in the in the retirement saving system um, the new fiduciary rule would also put, uh, you know would would extend to those types of conversations if they meet the, the, the regulatory test
0: uh, adam you mentioned the prohibited transaction exemption how does that relate or does it relate to this fiduciary rule that we're talking about
2: sure yeah i think you're referring to as, as we saw in in the, in the press earlier this week the department of labor recently published a new rule regarding its prohibited transaction exemption procedures, which is just a, a great thing to say. It rolls right off the tongue, right? Um, and I think a lot of people are thinking about there's prohibited transactions in the fiduciary rule. What is this new DLL rule uh, on prohibited transaction procedures? And what this is, is it's their final rules on essentially how and when they will accept applications for prohibited transaction exemptions, right? The fiduciary rule would amend a number of exemptions, but ERISA envisions that because the the prohibited transaction rules are so strict, the Department of Labor will need to grant additional exemptions, and this controls how and when they're going to accept those applications. Um, I think in terms of of this, you know, Spark commented on those rules, had a number of concerns. We're concerned about some of the ways it might um, reduce innovation, product development. How it relates to the fiduciary rule, I think, is an interesting question. Um, Obviously, if you're an advice provider and you're trying, you're now a fiduciary, you need to get an exemption. This is going to make it harder. But I also think that the DOL, through its proposal, has shown that for advice transactions, they really want uh, advice providers to be using this new prohibited transaction exemption. This is amended prohibited transaction exemption. So, to the extent they are willing to entertain other types of exemptions for advice, this might make it harder. But I really think through their current proposal on the fiduciary rule, they're really signaling to everybody, we want to see advice coming through um, PTE 2020 and not other exemptions.
0: Well, Adam, uh, Tim, I need to take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about fiduciary reactions. And boy, there are a lot of reactions and next steps. You're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN AM. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Welcome back. We're joined this morning by Tim Rouse of the Spark Institute and Adam McMahon of the law firm Davis & Harmon. Adam, Tim, thanks so much for staying with us. Really appreciate you hanging around for segment number two this morning. Uh, Tim, I want to come to you because obviously... um, The retirement industry is glacial in terms of change. This is a pretty significant change. And I would imagine that within the retirement ecosystem, there are a bevy of opinions, a plethora of opinions. What's been the reaction from your members and others in the industry?
1: Well, Jeff, I can tell you that the SPARC members are opposed to the rule. And we've communicated that in our uh, letters to the Department of Labor. Um, As written today, it would prevent or call into question uh, many of the things that SPARK members do today uh, to service plans and participants. And, and we talked about a few of those um, in the previous segment. Um, and these will negatively impact, th- these restrictions will negatively impact uh, retirement savers. Um, and, and even, uh, even if um, it doesn't strictly prohibit a certain activity performed today, by simply calling it into question will cause many plan sponsors to simply choose not to offer that service. Um, and, and, you know, and as Adam mentioned, Spark has been, um, particularly concerned with how the rule is likely to result in the reduction of many of the beneficial forms of participant assistance and the assistance that, uh, record keepers currently provide to plan sponsors, uh, as part of their clearly sales context. Um, you know, these activities promote healthy financial habits, uh, like starting a plan, adopting a well-diversified portfolio, uh, avoiding early distributions. Uh, these are all things that we don't want to see uh, disappear because of this um, overly broad regulation.
0: Yeah. And, and Adam, I, I want to ask you, and, and it's interesting because you've got this rule, and I understand the rationale behind the rule, at least I think I do, but from the Department of Labor uh, but but Tim makes some really good points. And, and you know, I think they got like 19,000 comments somewhere around there. I don't know how they're going to go through them all, by the way. And they're going to um, you know, they had some hearings. What's next in terms of this rule? It's got to get vetted, probably written, rewritten, I would think, as, as a result of some of the feedback.
2: Yeah. Uh, so I think first step is they have a lot of reading to do. Right. As you mentioned, <laughs> uh, the comment period closed earlier this month. Uh, right at the start of January, on January 2nd. So right after we uh, raised champagne glasses, we got to file a letter on behalf uh, of Spark. And the DOL is going to be taking a look at those. They're going to be you know, thinking about the feedback they received and starting to work to get to a final rule. Um, as you mentioned, they received a little over 19,000 comment letters. Um, a lot of those, some of those are, are form letters, right? Things that that a lot of people have sent in. But I think they've received maybe about 400 unique comment letters, again, including um, Sparks' letter raising concerns with the proposal. I think in the next couple of months, VOL is going to be looking to to incorporate that feedback. But at the end of the day, I think the final rule is largely going to look very similar to how it's been proposed. There might be some tweaks around the edges, but for the most part, um, it was clear that this was the type of rule that they wanted to to advance. And we would expect to see something very similar to the proposal. in terms of next steps, timelines, things like that, this is obviously a clear priority for the department. This is a, a clear priority for the administration. This was actually rolled out. Um, on, you know. Unlike a lot of the, the rules sometimes in the retirement space at a White House press event involving the president, acting secretary of labor, um, they want to get this done. And, and it, we expect them to get it done quickly. Um, one thing that, that is going to encourage them to get it done quickly is um, there's some special rules that say at the end of an administration, if there's an election, and the opposing party can control both the White House and both Houses of Congress. Um, There's a special procedure under the Congressional Review Act, which makes it easier for that incoming party to essentially eliminate and erase regulations that were finalized at the end of the term. Um, There's concern in an election year that that those types of things are in play. I I think because of that, DOL is going to move to get this finalized very early in the year in order to avoid those challenges. It doesn't mean DOL thinks they know what the election is going to, to what the outcome of the election is going to be. Um, But with a rule this significant, they don't want to jeopardize it or expose it to those types of of challenges. Um, That's kind of the conventional wisdom in terms of timing, what we expect to see. And obviously with the fiduciary rule, we've seen, you know, surprises happen, things slip. Um, We've been surprised before, but I think generally the the conventional wisdom here is that we would expect to see a final rule early in uh, the first half of 2024.
0: And Tim, uh, back in 2016, under a similar umbrella of the fiduciary rule, the industry took the Department of Labor to court, I think, to put a halt to uh, what was back then the fiduciary rule. Is that, could that happen again? Could the industry decide to revisit that approach?
1: Well, uh, Jeff, back in 2016, Spark was not part of the, the court case, um, and we aren't currently planning to get involved this time uh, either. Um, however, we are seeing firms and other trades line up uh, with the intent to sue the Department of Labor to try to stop this change. Um, I guess the one thing that's different from 2016 is that uh, the court challenge uh, that um, the the court uh, challenge from 2016 is now um, is now precedent, and I suspect that this case will find its way back into the Fifth uh, Fifth Circuit, and that. Um, that rule back then was invalidated. Um, so, uh, 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 so I suspect that, uh, a lot of the groups that are planning to, um, fight this in court, uh, are probably feeling pretty confident, uh, of their chances. However, as you know, Jeff, uh, outcomes of court battles are, are always a hard thing to predict. Um, but again, I, I, I think the the folks that are planning to to fight, the industry folks that are planning to fight it, uh, feel very favorable uh, in terms of their chances. Um, so
0: I guess I'm more really
1: sure will happen, but I suspect that there will be a court battle.
0: Yeah, well, uh, more to come. It seems like these things more and more bring up these types of issues. Gentlemen, we're going to have to leave it there. Adam, Tim, great to see you both. Thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you back on the program thanks, again. Right, thanks a lot. And that wraps up this episode of BRNAM. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line and don't forget for all the latest curated news and lifestyle wellness, finance tech, so much more in all in one place. Check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, then visit our website. We're back again tomorrow with another edition of BRNAM. We'll have a very special guest and an important topic, of course. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget. Roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co create content around any topic